Michael Tranmer here, welcoming you to the Wake Up Podcast, where you will learn expert strategies and hear expert stories to help you wake up, live your best life, and make every day count. On this podcast, we will deep dive into all aspects of business, relationships, health, and mindset that will help you achieve your greatness in all areas of your life. Buckle up, my friends. It's time to wake up. Well, let me just give a quick intro on who Sherry is, on who you are. Uh, let me go ahead. Sherry, food philosopher, chef, nutritionist, nutritionist, former Victorian chair of nutrition for all of Australia. Is that right? Victorian chair of nutrition Australia. So yes. TEDx speaker, an author of the book, A Return to Food. Nice, nice. <laughs> the life-changing anti-diet. Looks good. Travel the world doing diet and lifestyle makeovers with celebrities, athletes, CEOs, billionaires, including Brett Wilson and Jamie Oliver. Well, I, I didn't do Jamie the lifestyle Oliver makeover foundation. with Jamie Oliver. I um, worked for his foundation. I did Perfect. pro bono work, yeah. Perfect. And what, what you do is you really help people achieve freedom from sweets. Is that correct? So um, my business is called Sweet Freedom, or one mm -hmm. of them, and um, it's really helping people beat sugar addiction. So, mm -hmm. so they're free from the power that sugar has over them. That's one, one part of the thing that I Amazing. do for sure. And you really help people develop a good relationship with their food, their body, and the planet, which is yes. really the, the third kicker, which I'd love to hear more about all of that. But before, before all that, before all that, how, how, did you, how did you get to where you are now? How did all of this come? What, what's your story? <laughs> well, I was born an addict, uh, addicted to the world's most dangerous drug, according to Paul van der Velpen, who's the chief of Amsterdam Health. And according to the um, to Robert Lustig, he would say that it's the gateway drug to the opiate crisis. And I'm not alone because there are millions of people on the planet who were born addicted to refined sugar. And in fact, I go a stage further and say uh, the lethal recipe, which I talk about in my book, and that's refined sugars, oils, salts, grains, and chemicals, and anything that's processed from its natural state into a drug-like state, essentially removing all the macro and micronutrients until it's a pure substance that is addictive and toxic to the body, particularly in large amounts. And so my sugar addiction saw me, you know, a very emotional relationship with food from a young age. I was freebasing tang in my backyard, you know, like dipping my finger into the tang. And, and I, you know, it was like really frustrating that I couldn't actually get a surface area big enough to take the tang in and the amounts that I wanted. And um, as a child, I was, I was prone to many different uh, health issues, but in particular, depression was ever pervasive throughout my life. And when I became a chef, it got really bad in the sense that I became twice my size. And so I like to joke and say, not 10 foot four, I haven't had a massive height reduction. Um, I was, you know, starting the morning with half a liter of ice cream and I was obese and 
miserable and um, avoiding really feeling anything except, you know, the pleasure I got from food. And then I would also feel the downside of that, which that depression was so bad. At one point, I really wanted to die. And all of that changed really when I got off of sugar. And so I went from being a chef to having a cooking school to then becoming the Victorian Chair of Nutrition Australia. And I was the Melbourne president of Slow Food. And I had lost a lot of weight, but I was still learning that I'd had a disordered relationship with food and my body. And when I started to understand, you know, that the reason every time I was on a diet, I gained weight was because I was, wasn't actually ever addressing the issue why I was having this destructive relationship with food in the first place. And so I went, really went on a journey to <clears throat> understand what it is we're meant to be eating and how we're meant to be eating as the human species. I was not just malnourished physically that created the obesity, but there was a form of malnourishment or toxicity mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. When I started to nourish myself, in those areas that really heal past traumas, um, my relationship with food changed. And that, you know, relationship with food changed my relationship with my body. And then I started to learn um, that there was something even deeper in relationship to the planet and how um, when we understand how we're meant to eat as the human species, not just the physical things that we're meant to be eating, but the social context in which we eat, uh, that it changed everything for me. And that when I started to get and live and practice those things, the drug-like substance of sugar lost its power over me. Amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing all of that. There's, there's a lot in there, but I sense, I sense that you went through a massive change and that was probably over a number of years, all of what you just described that went down. Yes. And so it wasn't just a, a quick aha moment, but would I be right in saying that the transformation that you undertook was so powerful and so great? Because my next question was going to be, what is the driving force behind all that you're doing, all of your work, all of it right now? Would I be right in saying that, that your transformation was so great and so powerful that now it's, you know, it really drives you forward to help other people do the same? Yeah, I think so. I th I, and one of the things that I learned around our whole relationship, you know, around addiction, is that we're all here to serve. We're all here to find our way in the world, to use our own unique gifts and talents and life experience and the wisdom that we accrue from the, in particular, often painful or traumatic experiences as a form of service. And when we get to that, Everything else in our life becomes so much easier, clearer. So that's huge because there's a lot of people out there, and this has nothing to do with the topic that we're here for, but that's perfect. There's a lot of people that are out there looking for more, looking for purpose, <laughs> looking for all of that. And I was looking at it for, for a long time. I've, I've found my version of it now, and I'm sure that'll change again in the future. Mm -hmm. And so what you've just said is that when you found that, that sort of clarity on on your mission was was to serve and pass on all that you all the wisdom that you've gained everything that you've known to, to help other people get to a better place it's been it's been straight it's been clear sailing since then it's been it's been that's your that's your life work yeah absolutely and i don't want to confuse being clear sailing with easy <laughs> anyone Neither. can 
anyone can have a clear path in a sailboat to where they want to go. It doesn't mean they're not going to hit winds and weather and waves, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. But just mm -hmm. that, just that switch of of instead of you know a lot a lot of us looking you know to serve to serve ourselves. A lot of people out there, you know, me as I was younger as well. But then just that switch to serve outwards and serve others yeah. makes yeah. all the difference, right? Sure does. Yeah. Amazing. All right, let's let's talk about food. Okay. Hundred questions. Hundred right. questions. Basically, basically, your premise is return to real food. Yeah. And for me, I I want to be the healthiest dude around. I want to live till I'm 120. And you had a good quote from <laughs> Wednesday. Uh, we'll, we'll for sure hit on that. But I find it friggin' confusing. I do my mm -hmm. best. I would love to just be told on a daily basis what to do. Yeah. And so what you really struck me with what you said on Wednesday was return to real food and eat more of what the earth naturally creates in abundance. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about that philosophy? Yeah. And, and the, what I loved is that you, you, honed in on it right away and it's really the cornerstone of the philosophies that I teach and I really believe that nature's principle as I describe it is really um, something that's actually encoded in our DNA and you know when you hear something someone says it or they articulate it in such a word and you're just like that's so right I've never heard it worded that way but it's just so right and you have a deep knowing about it <clears throat> excuse me that's where I believe those those understandings are deeply encoded in our DNA. And so nature's principle is nature tells us what to eat and the quantities to eat it in by how easily it's obtained in nature. So, so that, that which is most abundant, we're meant to have most of. And there's a hierarchy for us to understand what it is we're meant to have. It's also really important to understand that that differs depending on where we are on the planet. And mm -hmm. that although we have similarities as the human species, the planet's biodiversity and our sustainability depends on us not all eating the exact same thing and certainly not the same thing year round. So as much as we want to be told, this is what you need to eat. This is when you need to eat it. This is how you need to eat it. You have a deeper knowing within your body that I don't know. Don't know what you're allergic to, what you have a genetic propensity for or against. And so what I help people do is to unlearn all the noise around nutrition and understand how it is they're meant to eat according to nature, their body, and the human species. So if you think about it, that which is most abundant, there's a hierarchy of what we're most life-dependent on comes in the amount, you know, in, in a hierarchy. So we're most life-dependent as a nutrient on air. In fact, most people don't think of air as a nutrient. And I speak at nutrition schools, and they're like, air's not a nutrient. And I have, uh, you know, someone on YouTube say, as soon as I heard her talking about air as a nutrient, I shut off. And I was like, okay, what's your definition of a nutrient? We'll go to the dictionary and it says that which is required for growth. Try and grow something in your body without oxygen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so air and then the second most abundant nutrient on the planet. Air is everywhere. We don't have to wake up and go, I need to go source my air today, right? Not yeah. yet. <clears throat> And this, the second most abundant nutrient, we're second most life-dependent on, covers 70% of the planet, composite-wise. 70% of our body, composite-wise, is water. Mm -hmm. And then the next is vegetation. Vegetation has a hierarchy. So think about, given a choice between 
a broccoli seed or an apple seed and you had to feed your family and you're hungry, what are you going to plant if you're only given a choice to plant one? Well, the broccoli seed germinates faster. It sprouts faster. It bears fruit, you know, bears a plant faster. It will nourish you faster. The apple seed will take years to actually establish. But even if it's an established plant, you're going to get way more broccoli before that apple even becomes mature, let alone ripens, because we don't eat mature apples. We eat ripened apples. And anyone who's made the mistake of eating an apple before it's ripe knows how horrible it tastes. And it's nature's way of saying, wait, if you just wait a little while through the seasons, eat this stuff that's low on the ground and easy to obtain, I'm going to reward you with not just sugar and sweetness, but more macro and micronutrients. Because in the ripening process, that's where most of the nutrients are actually infused into the fruit. Mm -hmm. So when we get fruit that's picked green, kept in storage for months and in some cases years, and then ripened with ethylene gases, the body says, hmm, it's kind of eh, meh, right? Mm -hmm. So if you actually think about the difference between if you've ever had the luxury of picking something off the vine or off a tree or a bush that's been ripened and warmed by the sun. I've had it happen. And I remember um, just the, the incredible feeling and sensations of pleasure and joy you get in your mouth is incredible. You have the all have what she's having noises like, mm, mm, <laughs> okay, so, so now what's happening is I'll go back to nature's principle. Nature tells us what to eat in the quantities needed and by how easily it's obtained in nature. So that which is most abundant, we're meant to have most of, and nature gives it to us um, in, in not just amounts, but when it's most available. So that which is harder to obtain, nature gives us stronger physiological desires to work for it. We're meant to eat less of it, but we're given stronger desires because it's rarer in nature. So you think about the proteins of nuts and seeds and and sugars, you know, they're, they're things that are harder to obtain in nature. So we've evolved to have stronger physiological desires and, and a dopamine reaction that is the want response that makes us work hard for it. And in nature itself, regulating these foods are higher in energy. Um, and so we work off the corresponding energy that it takes to mm -hmm. get it. And so it's regulated. There's no such thing as obesity in nature. It's only when we are um, supplied with food that we couldn't source ourselves. So if you go back thousands of years, the only people who were obese were people who had lots of food brought to them, like kings and nobility or the cooks, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone who had to survive and source their own food was always slightly in deficit as far as calorically, mm -hmm. for the most part, okay, depending on where you lived. So harder to obtain, getting stronger physiological desires. And then the third group is, if you can't get it in nature, not only do you not need it, it's harmful to the body and the planet. So what's mm -hmm. happening now is we're eating from this area. Mm -hmm. Most of our food nowadays is stuff we could never make in nature. We're eating from the second area, foods that are hard to obtain. They're some of the most easy to obtain. And, so, mm -hmm. and then this stuff that's most easy to obtain is non-addictive. Um, and so it doesn't have the same appeal as these ones, which are highly addictive. So it gets left out. So we're almost eating backwards, right? We're eating mm -hmm. foods that are highly processed, highly addictive and toxic to the body. So even if we're eating natural foods like fruit, you know, like mm -hmm. proteins and things like that, we're eating them in amounts we can never source ourselves in nature. There's no such mm -hmm. thing 
as a place in nature that that will grow bananas 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. So not only that, we're not only eating bananas. Everyone has to have a smoothie with banana in it every single day and all that kind of thing. But we're eating bananas that are so toxic. Um, it's just when you start to understand how they're grown, and even if they're grown organically, how they're dipped into chemicals to ship them across the world, you start to understand that there's no wonder there's an imbalance because we're just not eating anything in an in natural way. So just because it's natural or we perceive it to be natural, if we eat it in amounts we would never consume it in nature, it's going to create an imbalance in the body. Amazing. So what to do? Yeah. And before what to do, <laughs> just while I'm thinking about it, where, where does meat come in? Where does poultry come in? Where does fish come in? Because I know yeah. a lot of people are, are thinking that. Yeah. Well, for the first, the first thing right now, most people aren't eating any of those things naturally. They're not eating them one, um, natural versions of them. And the earth can't sustain us all eating even natural versions of them. So we're eating factory farm versions. And as I say in Return to Food, you eat what you eat eats. And basically, yeah. So if you're feeding cattle and pigs and fish on farms, foods that they would never eat in nature, two things. You're eating that food because the genetic structure of a beast is made up by the food that it eats. And, um, you know... A lot of the food is genetically modified. Um, it's foods that it would never eat in nature, and so it creates an imbalance in their body. There's tons of animals now where butchers routinely or, you know, fishmongers will cut out the cancers. So we're eating cancerous, toxic animals. Um, and then we're eating them in amounts we would never consume in nature, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, like, imagine, like I, I say, given a choice for dinner tonight, between chicken or an egg and say you're vegetarian or sorry, you're not vegetarian or vegan, what would you say most Canadians would choose or Americans would choose? Choose the chicken. That's right. And it's because it's more addictive than the eggs. We always choose the species or the substance that's more addictive if we're not conscious, right? So given the same choice in nature, I refer to this in a concept I teach called the consumption concept, and you had to go out and get an egg, or you had to go catch, kill, pluck, disembowel, bleed, and prepare chicken, how many people would make the same choice? Especially if they're so killing, interesting. A, killing a source of eggs, right? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so even if we're given these choices, in na- when we're in nature, we make different choices than we make when, when all the work's done for us or we don't see how it's actually an animal's treated. If, if I treated, if you came to my house and I had a chicken in my house and I was treating it like they treated in a factory farm, you would think I was a horrible person. You know, I, I look at um, lamb and veal and I'm not vegan, just so you know, but I'm an omnivore. But if I treated um, veal like a little baby cow, the way it's treated and I had it in my house, you would think I was like Medusa, like a horrific person. Mm-hmm. And if I saw, had a little family of sheep and I went, I'm going to kill the little baby one because it tastes sweeter, right? Imagine an alien species coming to, um, you know, the earth and, and we, we took the little babies, you know, they took the little babies instead of the large humans because they tasted sweeter. Mm-hmm. So, but what's, we, but what's, what's the point? Like yeah. people like veal, people like little baby sheep. 
screw it. Like we're, we're here. We want to eat what we want. We work hard, blah, blah, blah. What's, why is this important? Um, well, I mean, who was it that said, uh, you can judge a species based on how it treats the, you know, the least of, of people. Um, and the bigger thing is apart from the, the ethical or moral side of it, um, when you, if you're going to be really selfish as a species, which humans are, mm. and say, you know, fuck it or whatever, I have my right to eat meat. Sure. But if you treat an animal badly, if you feed it badly, you know, um, if it gets sick because of that, and most of the animals in factory farms are sick, you will get sick eating that animal. So from a, a purely selfish point of view, it's not a smart way to eat. The mm. other thing is, is that most of the healing properties of foods, which most people who are interested in their health are interested in the healing aspects, they come from plant foods, right? So the phytochemicals and phytonutrients in food are the things that protect us against disease. They don't just provide, you know, the nutrients, the building blocks for, for being. They provide the things that protect us against diseases and conditions. And so um, you're gonna, just going to get more bang for your buck when you're eating plant foods. And so... The, the thing is, is I'm not, I'm not saying this to put judgment on anyone because I don't think I'm a, per, a person who's so morally, you know, <laughs> pure that I could do that. What I do is I want people to just start thinking about these things and to have a more mindful consciousness around the food choices they're making. Yeah, I, like for me, what still resonates with your message is what if you were out in nature? Let's all think like we were however many years ago out in nature, what would sustain us longest, what would be easiest to grow and, and help us out, what, what makes sense to live a, like an actual sustainable lifestyle, right? Yeah. The other thing too that I encourage people is, um, I know you're, you're a coach. You're encouraging people to evolve and grow and aspire to their best, best version of themselves, right? That's right. So I think about the human species, and yes, for a long time we relied on animals for our food. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can live a healthy life and get nourished without having to have factory farms, you know, or you know, subject animals to really horrendous behavior, why wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. And and so even you know, I look at many traditional cultures, and if they did eat meat, they had it once a week. You know, there are very few totally carnivorous. Humans aren't obligate carnivores. Mm -hmm. So that's all I'll say on the, the matter, because I know it triggers a lot of people around, yeah, around that space. And, and like I said, I'm not a vegan, so I can't speak about this from the space of kind of don't eat meat. It's yeah. just one of the conversations around developing a conscious relationship to food, our body, and the planet. And right now, our planet can't sustain the way we're actually eating animals. Yeah, and I think that is sort of a good note to and wrap that part off. Our mm -hmm. planet can't sustain it. So, you know, do we want to really flourish in this generation, the next one, the next three or four, and then that be it? Or do we want to think, you know, like the First Nations folks do, seven generations out and beyond? You yeah. know, you got to think about it. Just be conscious. Yeah. There yeah. was, uh, what do I do? How do I, how do I avoid all the process stuff? What's What's sort of one easy step? What's sort of one change that I can make? What's a little bit of hope that I can have to yeah. be healthy? 
Well, the first thing I always suggest to people is get to a farmer's market and think slow. Okay, so think slow so. being the acronym seasonal, local, organic, and whole. Okay, slow, seasonal, local, organic, and whole. And farmer's markets are a great way to do that. And I'm not saying you have to do like I do and go every week. Like I'm a, I'm a farmer's market nerd. I go and when I travel, I try and get to a new city on a Saturday so I can go to a farmer's market, right, to check it out. Cool. But even if you go once a month, you start to develop a new relationship with how food is grown and sourced. You develop a relationship with farmers. Um, you get to see what's available. And there's not a lot. There's some in most farmer's markets of highly processed foods. But most of it's whole foods. And so it's just a great way to kind of start just once a month. Just go and, and check mm. it out. Yeah, that's so cool. Getting back to before before we take another avenue here, I wanted to, to touch on, I don't want to drill into the meat thing too much, but I know a lot of questions that I, that I get are about how do I get my protein? Oh, how do I right. get, how do I get my protein? So how do I get my protein? Yeah. Um, so one thing is Kwashiorkor disease, which is protein deficiency is um, pretty much non-existent in North America. And to date, I haven't met a vegan who's had Kwashiorkor disease, <laughs> protein deficiency. So there's plenty of protein in plants, but we've been on, there's, and this is one of the things that when I'm teaching people, and I said to you at the beginning, part of my work is to unlearn all the, the dogma and doctrines and, and uh, propaganda around nutrition. So remember, the healthiest cultures, longest living cultures on the planet had no dietitians, nutritionists, or nutritional scientists. From a nutritionist. So, now, you're a nutritionist. I'm a nutritionist. I'm a nutritionist, okay. yeah. And I've been the Victorian chair of Nutrition Australia, and I've taught at you know, universities. I've taught nutrition at universities and, and institutions. So what happened is that once we started to break our food down into macro and micronutrients, and we took a reductionist view of our food rather than a holistic macro view of our food, we, we developed an unnatural relationship with food. But here's another thing that happened, and I know this from my work as um, the Victorian Chair of Nutrition Australia and the influence that I had in Australia is that marketing companies will use nutritionists, doctors, and dietitians to sell crap products mm. and get the assumed legitimacy and credibility that comes from a doctor, dietitian, or nutritionist and say, if they say the product's good, it must be good. A doctor, dietitian, nutritionist said it. And it's actually pretty much BS for the most part because no doctor, dietitian, or nutritionist needs to tell you that an organic apple is good for you. Mm -hmm. We only seem to need to get it, um, this external validation when people are pushing a product that is being processed in some form or another. And there's so many supplements out there, I can't even begin to tell you how much media and marketing goes into um, and particularly in the last 100 years, we've been deluged with scientific information. And what I found is studying the Pacific Asia Clinical Journals of Nutrition is that you can find peer-reviewed, validated, credible science that contradicts one another. It's almost mm -hmm. like you can find a scientific paper that will support anything you want to sell. Okay. Oh. Right? And so it's used. And so what happens is now the average person is confused. And they're like, well, but they said soy is like the wonder food. It's going to solve all my nutritional problems and world peace, you know. But I just need to 
spread a lot of soy in the Middle East and we'll all be fine, you know? And, and the next day you hear that soy is this terrible food and it's going to, you know, kill your children and create breast cancers and all that kind of stuff. But what we need to do is stop listening to that noise and all that kind of credible science and start to listen to our bodies and observe nature and understand how we're meant to eat as the human species. Okay, because if you look at how the human species was meant to eat, imagine eating wheat. I don't know if you know of anyone or if you've ever had a blade of wheat to chew on. But in the prairies, when they'd have a blade of wheat, they would have one little thing of wheat. And it'd be like getting the germ out would be some work. And it's around the husk. It's not comfortable. But once you got it out, it was like gum. You could chew it all afternoon. So it's mm -hmm. gum. And when we dry it and, you know, thresh it and, you know, process it, it, it forms a goo and glue in our gut. Now, a horse or, you know, a cow has a large mandible and teeth that can work that out and they don't have to separate the husk. But humans are very different. So what's happening now is we get a food that would provide us a lot of energy and it was great for building pyramids and things like that. <laughs> you know, when you had slaves and you, you didn't want to feed them a, you know, three-course meal with a salad and whatever, there was wheat to, you know, give them energy to work super hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, but now we're eating amounts of wheat that one, we're really not designed for the human species to eat in any large amount. Mm -hmm. And now we're eating it in a way that it was never designed for us to eat in nature. So it's mm -hmm. hybridized and genetically modified. And so it has a very different effect on the body. Mm -hmm. And then we're processing all the nutrients out of it. Mm -hmm. And because it's addictive, we're eating a lot of it. And like I, I will tell people when I speak to, you know, indigenous people or First Nations people, I say, don't eat the white man's white food. You know, bannock is not an indigenous food. It's, it's mm -hmm. your maladaptation from the white man's food and the white man's white food's making you sick, mm -hmm. right? And so when we start to understand how did we eat in the healthiest cultures, um, you know, how did, how did, what were we eating, where were we eating, why, all those kinds of things, we start to realize that most of the stuff that's sold to us as healthy, you couldn't find in nature. And so what you'll find is not only will it create an environmental problem creating that product through the packaging and the chemicals that they use and the processing of the plants they have to create, but it will create an imbalance in the body some way. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. So... If I'm in the grocery store, one of the biggest takeaways from, from this call, from this, from this chat, is if I'm in the grocery store, I'm confused, I'm tired, it's a Friday, whatever. If I'm having trouble yeah. processing what I believe is healthy for me, if I return and say, is this abundantly available in nature, that's going to set me in a good direction. Absolutely. Yep. And without packaging is a really good thing because the healthiest things don't come in packages. Um, or if it does have packaging, um, is it one single ingredient? Are they whole ingredients? Are they organic? And definitely no chemicals. So that's why organic is a really good thing to go for. And make sure the bulk of what you're doing is organic. And then if you need things in packages to supplement the whole foods that you're eating, you just choose the ones without chemicals that, you know, are spices and flavorings, you know, the legumes, you know, things Love like it. that. Uh, yeah. To make your food interesting. Love it. Now, can I ask you about why a high sugar diet, this is sort of going around in a circle, but this is super mm -hmm. important. 
why a high sugar diet with processed foods, all the crap, why is it so bad for us and our bodies, in our energy, in our health, in our life expectancy, mm. in our reaching our match, maximum potential? Why is that shit so bad for us? Yeah. Well, in its natural state, sugars are fine. So one, its natural state is fine. And in the amounts we would get it in nature, it's fine. So right now what's happening is uh, most of the fruit we're growing, we're actually growing it with more sugars in it. Like we're actually hybridizing it and growing it in a very controlled way to increase the sugar levels because our, our palates are becoming so much sweeter. Mm -hmm. So again, even the natural stuff, we're no longer getting in the amounts. And in nature, it's controlled. Now, the brain is sugars, the brain's best and worst friend in the sense that in its natural state, you know, glucose is the, the big fuel for the brain. It's required, right? But it can make it from a lot of things. You don't need pure sugar for the brain to get it. In fact, Pure sugar is made in very similar ways to how we take opium sap and turn it into heroin or coca leaves and turn it into cocaine. And I remember when I first became a chef, I was a geek, you know, I was studying Harold McGee's on food and cooking. And I saw, like I read how sugar was made and I was like, gee, I've never made heroin before, but I kind of have a feeling, you know, from things I've seen that that's how heroin's made, right? Mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen it made in the family just so you know. Okay, there's no Breaking Bad here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then I started to look, and I was like, oh, the sugars, oils, salts, grains, and all these chemicals are made in the same way. They take a natural substance, which has vitamins and minerals and macro micronutrients and phytochemicals, and they start using heat and toxic chemicals to eliminate all of those. So you end up with a pure white substance. In the mm -hmm. case of refined sugar, it's glucose. So it is very similar to how opium sap in its natural state, which is not addictive or toxic, that has opiates in it. They use it in, uh, I was told, during funerals in, in Iran. They will um, dry it, powder it, and sprinkle it into teas to help people help uh, cope with the grieving process. If you know of anyone who's been traveling in South America, they'll chew on coca leaves, and that will give them, a, you know, like us having a little bit of coffee. But in their natural state, they're not highly addictive and toxic. So sugarcane in its natural state, again, tons of nutrients in it. If you talk to a child um, who's grown up on a, a cane plantation, to eat this much sugar cane would take them more than a day. They just chew on it. Now, if you think about in the, when Sir Frederick Banting, who was the father, the founder of insulin, discoverer of insulin, when he studied the plantation owners whose children had refined sugar, it was rife with dental, they, children were rife with dental caries and diabetes. But the plantation workers who had no access to refined sugar just chewed on the sugar cane, no diabetes, no dental caries. If you look at just like an eight-inch piece of cane, which can take you up to a day or more to actually chew through, like you'd have to go pretty solid a full day just to get that. That amount of sugar you'll find um, is in about this much of a soft drink. <laughs> okay, so we're talking a glass this big. So the average soft drink has about 14 of those sticks in it that we can drink just like that. And all of the macro micronutrients removed. So if you've ever had fresh cane juice, a glass of it, it's hard to finish a whole glass. There's just so many nutrients in it, the body says, whoa, had enough. Whereas if you have the refined version, the brain's um, signal to say, I've had enough is shut off, particularly with things like high fructose corn syrup, which I call the crack cocaine of the sugar world.
So here's the result of not only having refined sugars, but extraordinary amounts that we could never consume in nature. There's over 146 diseases and conditions that we can directly attribute and relate to sugar consumption. And that by not having sugar, we can actually either um, dramatically reduce the symptoms or in fact reverse the conditions. And I've worked with people who are diabetic, who in seven days were off all insulin. All their um, diabetic uh, symptoms had normalized. So if you look at what, oh. it, what it's doing to our brain, and this is really important because um, our, our vital organs are dramatically impacted by sugar. So heart disease, we've seen now that the sugar industry suppressed the fact that sugar is one of the major contributors, if not the most, contributor to heart disease. We know the liver and the pancreas, insulin, uh, sugar is a major implicator in that. But what most recently is shocking people and I think scaring people, and we also know that cancer loves sugar. And um, uh, so, but cancer for some reason doesn't scare people as much as Alzheimer's and dementia. And the Canadian government just released a report that saying not far into our future, one in five Canadians will have Alzheimer's. Well, they're now calling Alzheimer's diabetes type three or diabetes of the brain. Hmm. And so 30 years before Alzheimer's symptoms manifest, we can actually be creating them in our bodies. And so when we talk about why sugar is so bad, well, all those diseases tend to scare us for a moment. What they don't scare us <laughs> is when we're having the cake or the cookies or the ice cream or the drink with our friends because we're not thinking, ah, 30 years from now I'll get Alzheimer's. Who cares? I can watch the Titanic again for the first time and be very excited about it. <laughs> At least that's what I think the upside <laughs> would be. I get to watch Downton Abbey all over again like the first time. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, um, but, but here's the thing, what it does is it suppresses our immune system and it creates all these symptoms of imbalance in the body. To me, for me, the worst was depression. And so one of the biggest things that stops me from having, you know, large amounts of sugar on natural amounts of sugar, um, types of sugar is how I want to feel tomorrow morning. You know, it's like, you know, even just a few hours from, from now, how do I want to feel? And is this piece of sugar chocolate that I'm going to have really worth it? Now, as you know, what I said the other night, I believe chocolate is God's way of saying he loves us and wants us to be happy. And that I'd rather live to a hundred with chocolate than 120 without it. But there are types of chocolate where you can have that will actually enhance your health. And then there are types please of chocolate. Please be dark chocolate. Please be dark chocolate. Oh yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you my favorite uh, dark chocolate. And in fact, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm also writing a script for a romantic comedy of which chocolate plays, plays a big part. Um, and sugar, actually. Yeah, so, so we can have natural sugars. We just need to have them in their natural amounts. And we need to be respectful for the amounts that we'd have in a natural environment. And when we go over that, and that differs for every body. And so... Um, the guides where it's funny, I was, I was at the farmer's market the other day and someone selling seaweed was talking to um, one of her customers about the nutritional labels on seaweed. And I rolled my eyes and she was like looking at me and I said, I think the nutritional panels have caused more harm than good. They confuse people. She's like, oh, I'm so glad you've said that. You know, <laughs> I said, I'm a nutritionist. Um, so 
there, I, I really do believe that they create more confusion than they actually help people. You don't need to know. Um, if, if it has refined sugar in it, it's just, we're just not meant to be eating it. So we want natural sugars and we want them in the amounts that we're meant to consume in nature. And when we go over that, our body actually tells us. But here's the thing. We're taught to trust the labels and the external expert, you know, the scientist, as to what's good for us. And what I want people to know and encourage people to do is that your body is infinitely wiser than any external instrument. It's just, unfortunately, you have, over the period of your life, if you've been raised in a Western culture in particular, been systematically taught to not trust your own body. And I want people to get back to actually starting to even just listening to their own body. Before they trust it, they have to listen and understand the cues. Like, I remember when I first started doing this work and I had a, a woman come to me she says oh I was listening to my body I knew I needed sugar when I got up in the morning so I had a Mars bar and a can of coke for breakfast and she was mm. dead serious yeah <laughs> she was listening to her body because her body needed I said okay here's the distinction your body's communicating to you addictive signals <laughs> it's not a nutritional need right the body never says I need a can of coke for a health reason <laughs> It never says, I need a Mars bar. It's, that's what the addict says, I need the Coke and the Mars bar. But as we start to just become aware and sit and not be completely distracted, I mean, how many people just actually sit and eat a meal in silence, not in front of a screen anymore, you know, not being distracted? And then how many people will actually listen to their body consciously after an hour after they've eaten the meal, you know, two hours, how they feel the next morning? I can... You know, I, I still have these foods. I'm, I'm not preaching a totally abstinent way of living. I, like I said, I'd rather have my chocolate and live to 100 than 120. Um, because I, I don't know about past lives or future lives, but I do know I came to this one for the food. There is such a thing as many incarnations. This one was all about the food for me. So good. <laughs> so good. So, uh, yeah. It's about balancing pleasure. Balancing pleasure. Yeah. So um, I want to feel good. Okay. I want to feel good while I've eaten the meal, after I've eaten the meal the next day. And yeah, if I and ate like I used to, I'd feel good in the moment, but the rest was crap. And it's really a love about taking the time to listen to your body because yeah. it took me 37 point whatever years of not listening to my body and then trying something new when I stopped drinking and finally, my body was like, thank you. Why did you take so long getting all that poison out of you? And, but it's hard. It's hard to have that realization. It's hard to have that breakthrough. Yeah. It's hard for people that have eaten the same thing for 30, 40, 50, 70 years to, to tap in and understand why they don't feel good. And I think this leads perfectly into, you mentioned something in there where you got people off sugar for a week, diabetics, mm -hmm. and they notice changes within themselves within one week. And I believe you have a seven day get off sugar challenge. And I, I suppose you have that because the changes can be so great and so noticeable in such yeah. a short period of time. Could, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I have a, an eight week online program and it's called Sweet Freedom. And what we were noticing with the program is that giving up sugar, and we don't get people to give up sugar until the week four, 
So we get you ready to give up sugar. We're not a cold turkey program. But even that was confronting for a lot of people. And so what I did was I created a seven-day eat less sugar challenge where we get people in seven days to not only dramatically start to decrease the, kind, the amount of sugar you're having, but the kinds of sugar. So that if you are going to have something sweet, try and find the natural, most natural version of it, right? And then what we also do is with all the sugar that you're not having and the upgraded versions that you're having, we'd like to also replace some of those sweet things you're having with highly nourishing things. So as your body starts to get this sensation of well-being that comes through, through being nourished and it's not having the crack cocaine anymore it's now having you know the coca leaves or the opium sap right the sugar doesn't have the same hold on them so and then the every little less bit hit of the crack cocaine <laughs> of the sugar world that you're not getting and you're getting nourished your brain is starting to think better and feel better your moods become less you know, all over the place. You, you start to be able to sleep better and wake up better. And from that state, as we start to get your body and your mind and your spirit stronger, we can get you to start to look at your relationship with food from a much stronger place. I love Glennon Doyle says, you know, we can do the hard things. And in Sweet Freedom, we, we talk about making strong choices for a strong life. You know, weak choices are easy to make, but they leave you weaker and weaker and weaker so that when you're happy to make a strong choice, it's super hard. But as yeah. we just make one, and this is really important, this is not trying to overwhelm yourself and just go cold turkey. You know, I look at some of these programs out there, and, you know, I teach nutritionists um, how to develop a business and, and food coaches, how to make a business from food coaching. And I see some of the things they're doing and there's, they've got these meal plans for people where they're now having to prepare seven different breakfasts, seven different lunches and seven different dinners, a new recipe for each time of the week. <laughs> and I'm like the shopping alone for that. I'm a nutritionist and a chef would undo me. Like I would never be able to do it. And these are some people who don't cook at all. And so they look at it. And they get all excited because they're going to change their world. But it's way too much change too quickly. And, mm -hmm. and you're setting people up for failure. So as if you just learn one recipe a week, mm -hmm. you know, and just and, you know, implement that. One change a week can be really powerful, much more powerful than overwhelming people with, yeah, these crazy meal plans, which are just glorified diets. Amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, it can, yeah, and it can be overwhelming. But if, mm. yeah, if you, if you make that one change, and you start to feel better, and it starts to snowball, and you start to take out the, the crack and bring in the, the whole food, that's when you start gaining the momentum. I saw my friend Laura jumped on there, and her and I had the same question, because, and I'm going all over the place, but, but it's cool. It's a Sunday. There's no rules, yeah, right? That's right. Um, after dinner, I have dark chocolate. Yeah. We have sweet tooths after dinner. Yeah. Uh, is there, you know, I think in what you've said throughout this already is that mm. that's okay as long as, uh, hey, Laura, uh, as long as we've taken care of our, our temples throughout the previous 16 hours of the day. Yeah, so there's, there's two things I'll say about that. Number one with the chocolate is it depends on the chocolate that you're having because some dark chocolate actually has more sugar than milk chocolates, believe it or not, because they put more sugar in to compensate for the fact that it's more bitter and most of our palates can't handle the bitterness. So number one, get a good quality chocolate with natural sugars in it or, you know, a little bit of the stevia. So there's Lily's brand and then I, I'm a uh, 
big fan of Dick Taylor chocolates. So one thing you'll notice about the, the chocolate is the better quality you have, the more expensive it is. So mm -hmm. the less you have of it. <laughs> when you have uh -huh. a, a 57 gram bar and it costs you $11, you have a very different relationship with it than it's 100 <laughs> gram and it costs you two yeah. bucks, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're doing two things. One, um, you're respecting your body, but also the brands of chocolate that I'm referring to are much more respectful of the actual plant and the people who grow the plant. So the farmers get paid properly. They're not, you know, having to deal with pesticides. The chocolate industry is one of the most corrupt industries, you know, in the food world, mm -hmm. just like coffee and oils and all those things. So you see, we're not just making a decision sitting there, just taking care of our own wants and needs. We're approaching this holistically. I'm not just thinking of my chocolate, for my own selfish needs. I'm thinking about the planet. So the second piece that you alluded to is um, I refer to a concept in refer Return to Food, which I call pick your poisons. Because if you look at any traditional culture, they had something that toxic and addictive, right? You know, something that changed their state, whether it was cacao or um, ashwagandha or, or you know, um, um, psilocybins or cannabis or tobacco they had addictive things that altered their state. And I think it's very human. We're a very addictive species. And as much as I love reality, <laughs> I love a little bit of altering through chocolate, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'd say it's my spirit plant. They haven't yet um, had, had chocolate at, at the spirit plant conference. Maybe I'll, I'll give a talk <laughs> on that next year. But so the body can cope with a certain amount of toxicity, providing it's natural and from a natural form. And, providing the bulk of what we're doing is highly nourishing and addictive. So the little bit of chocolate is not the thing that creates diabetes or obesity. You know, the little, little thing of wine once a week is not the thing that creates alcoholism, you know. Um, <clears throat> or, you know, for any addictive substance, it's not the little bit, and it's not the little bit in its natural state. It's when we have an overconsumption of it and we alter its natural state. That's when mm. it becomes problematic for the body and the planet. Wow, that's 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 great. <clears throat> um, Laura has a question in here. Uh, but what were the brands of those two dark chocolates again? There was yeah. Lily, Lily Brand and then Lily's, Yeah, li <laughs> Lily's you can get in places like Choices, and they okay. sweeten with stevia. I'm not a great fan of the stevia, but for mm. anyone with sugar issues, it's a good brand. The other one is Dick Taylor. It sounds like dictator when I say it fast, but it's Dick Taylor. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's much harder to find. It's much more expensive too. But man, it's like, you know, the fine wine. It's the Chateau Latour, you know, it's the same, you know, Chateau Latour, the um, Chateau Neuf de Pape, the Grange Hermitage of the chocolate world. And it's worth seeking out for. So good. Yeah, appreciate that. And so good to know that uh, I can continue to have a little bit of dark chocolate after dinner each night. But yes, if I buy the most expensive one from down the street <laughs> at Whole Foods, it will make me think a little bit differently about it. So I'm going to ask one more, one more question and then I'm we'll wrap things up. Uh, just because when I was back home at Kingston at Christmas, we were all sitting around reading the, well, I haven't read it yet, but it was being read in the house. We're reading the obesity code which spoke a lot about fasting and that links back to insulin, which is something you mentioned in here below. Could you just give us a, you know, a quick, you know, for those who aren't uh, up to speed with fasting and the benefits of it or 
not? What, how yeah. that all plays in? So again, going back to the healthiest cultures on the planet, traditional cultures, almost every single culture has um, a ritual or a culture of fasting at some point, whether it was chosen for religious reasons, <laughs> um, cultural reasons, or just because nature didn't provide food 365 days a year, you know, dependable sources around the world. So our human bodies actually evolved or designed, however you want to view it, to cope with fasting. And it's a good thing. It gives the body a rest. And in our culture, um, we're just constantly not only eating a large amount of food, but unnatural foods. So I see it as it can be really helpful and, and useful. And here's the most strategic way to use it. Rather than doing it from a place of ego, um, to have a much more intentional practice around it. And one of the best ways to actually use fasting is when you don't have access to healthy food. So, and the best way to do that is traveling. Traveling, yeah. Right, right? So, <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's, you know, a lot of traveling for me is like fasting time because I know I'm not going to have either if I'll pack, and I have done this for over 25 years, I've packed air, airplane picnics, right? Thank you so much. Where can people find you? Um, sweetfreedom.ca. Sweetfreedom.ca and follow Sherry on Instagram. Uh, thank you so much for this and keep kicking ass and doing the great work that you're doing. <laughs> Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of the sunny day, Sherry. Thanks for having me, Michael. Take care. My pleasure. Thank you, valued listener, for tuning into another episode of Wake Up. If this episode has left you fired up and inspired to wake up all areas of your life, I have exactly what you need. I offer a powerful high-performance coaching experience to help you get committed to becoming the best version of yourself, clarity on all that you want to create in this lifetime, and the courage to manifest your dream life. If you are a high-performing entrepreneur or professional who wants to achieve greatness in your career, your business, your health, your wealth, your relationships, your mindset, then contact me today through my website, michaeltranmer.com or through Instagram at michael.tranmer to explore how my coaching program can benefit you. Are you a new wellness coach or interested in starting your own online business? I've got something for you amazing folks too. My signature group coaching program, The Complete Coach, will help take you from concept to clients in 90 days. Head over to my website, michaeltranmer.com slash complete coach to learn more and join the waitlist for the next intake. I appreciate you good people. If you got great value from this episode, please support the show by subscribing and sharing on your social media feeds. If you share a screenshot on Instagram and tag me, I will be sure to share with all of my followers. Till next time, this is Michael Tranmer helping you wake up, live your best life, and make every day count.